Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, we've reached the final frontier of our cop journey we've gone through the context of the climate crisis and the cops role in that the science the politics and now we're on to the role of movements the role of movements in influencing the outcomes of the cops and you know we always say it's the movements that make the difference and you know this cop 26 is a forcing mechanism to force world leaders to kind of wake up um, and act and so this is a really crucial part of the journey and the argument. Yes, and we've got some absolutely brilliant guests for you today. We're going to be talking to Vanessa Nakate, who is a Ugandan climate justice activist, about how she got involved in campaigning on the climate crisis and the importance of listening to voices from the global south. And we're also going to be talking to Tommy Vickerstaff from the campaign group 350.org about how activists in the UK are organising around the COP talks. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to speak now to an incredibly inspiring climate activist and founder of the Rise Up movement. It's Vanessa Nakate. Hello. Hi. I'm so interested in your story. Wondering if there's one moment in your life where you became aware of the the climate crisis. Thank you so much. The time when I really started to know a lot about the climate crisis was actually 2018, not so far from now. It was at that moment that I started to do a lot of research to try and understand the challenges that the people in my community and in my country were in Uganda were facing. And it was at that moment again that I realized that the climate crisis was the greatest threat facing our lives right now. However, when I saw some of you know these impacts, some of these disasters already happening in my country, I realized that the climate crisis was already here in Uganda. And I had actually seen it unfold but I never realized that it was climate change and and yet Uganda is somewhere that is feeling the impact of the climate exactly. crisis can can you talk to us a little bit about that and and the risks that Uganda faces in the coming years because of the rising global temperatures weather patterns are changing across the world and Uganda as a country is not an exception you know, because of the rising global temperatures, we are seeing extreme weather events happening in our country, Uganda. We've seen droughts, we've seen floods, we've seen landslides. And of course, if nothing is done about this, we are going to see more and more unfolding of such devastating events. 
For example, when you go to the eastern part of the country in the Mount Elgon areas, we've seen extreme rainfall cause massive flooding, massive landslides leading to destruction of people's homes, destruction of people's farms, people's businesses, and literally people being left with nothing, you know, to survive on. Last year during the pandemic, we saw the rise of the water levels of Lake Victoria and people's homes were encroached, toilets were submerged, you know, leading to a water crisis. And the northern parts of the country are experiencing extreme dry conditions that are drying uh, water sources, that are drying people's crops. So for Uganda, the climate crisis is here now. And Uganda as a country is heavily dependent on agriculture for survival, especially for many families in the rural communities. So a lack of rain means hunger, starvation and death for many people. And also extreme rainfall means hunger, starvation, destruction for many people. I can say that for the people of Uganda, the climate crisis is here now. It is our present and it is our present nightmare. Can you tell us a little about the climate strikes that you've been involved in? I, I started my very first climate strike in the first week of January 2019. And my very first strike, I was joined with uh, some of my siblings and my cousins who had visited for holidays. And my first climate strike was actually on a Sunday. I remember finding about the climate crisis Um towards the end of 2018, I was really scared to go to the streets. Naturally, I'm quite a shy person and I, I don't know much how to face or look at people. You would notice that if you were talking directly uh, in person. So yeah, you prefer but... doing it on a webcam to doing it in person? <laughs> I like both of them, but uh, the webcam is it's much easier for me. <laughs> yeah, so... I was really scared to go to the streets and I was really shy and I remember in that first week of January it was a Saturday and I I I started to think a lot about the climate crisis and I felt like I had I had not done what I had to do when I had found out and I was starting to feel bad about it and I just decided I would start striking that week. So then it hits me that Friday has already passed. So I just decided to start on a Sunday and then continue with the Friday strikes. And I don't know how many weeks they are now, but I know it's over two years now. And what do you remember about the Sunday being on the street, the reaction, how it felt? I would say it was very scary. We we did strikes in like four different places and we were spending like 30 minutes in each of these places. And we were just holding our placards and, you know, standing. And the very first, you know, positive reaction we got was from a lady who was telling us about some of the trees that were being cut down and... This was because they wanted to construct a school and her argument was that you can still have a school even with the trees, without cutting down the trees. So she acknowledged the work that we were doing, but that very first uh, strike, it was really a hard one, but along the way it, it felt much easier and much more comfortable. And of course, um, there are weird looks also from people because, I mean, who goes to the streets with placards on a Sunday morning. 
and and from when you started doing the Fridays, did you see it grow over the course of the the weeks and months? Over the the weeks, I started to go to different schools, and in these schools, you know, we would organize these strikes within the schools. It's not, you know, it's not as easy for us as we see in other countries to organize uh, these big climate strikes and you know get permits for that. It's not the case for every other activists in you know certain countries. So. Along the way, um, I, w- I started to visit different schools and organize with different students. So to me, that was, you know, really a growing, a growing movement because however much it was within the schools, many young people were being, you know, impacted and inspired to speak up for, you know, their future and for their planet. Well, let's talk about the Rise Up movement, which you founded uh, with the intention of amplifying voices of climate activists from across the continent of Africa. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about it and what your feelings are about how present voices from the global south have been in the climate conversation so far and, and how you feel maybe that has to change? The Rise Up movement uh, is really birthed from a group that was called Youth for Future, and this was founded in 2019, and uh, that was towards the end of the year. And I remember forming that group was because uh, when I started to talk to some of my friends I had gone to school with, you know, to join climate activism, to strike with us and demand for climate justice, many of them were not feeling so comfortable, you know, with joining the climate movement because at that time in 2019, uh, media would report about it like it's a movement that is only for teenagers or much younger people. And most of my friends, including including me, we were in our 20s and we had just finished college. So many of them were not feeling that they would fit in the Fridays for Future movement. So I say we can call ourselves Youth for Future and still be a part of Fridays for Future, and but we identify ourselves as Youth for Future. But then later on, uh, we changed the name to the Rise Up movement in January uh, last year. And this was to, you know, to do much more than just strikes, to amplify voices. And, uh, you know, what I can talk about the importance of, you know, listening to the voices of people from the most affected communities is that we won't have climate justice if everyone is not included. We won't have climate justice if some people are being left behind. The people who have been facing the impacts of the climate crisis and still are facing the devastating impacts of the climate crisis, they did not cause the climate crisis, but they are paying for that. So it's important to listen to our voices because we have stories to tell and our stories have solutions to give and us our solutions, they have lives to change. So when when we speak up, we are speaking for our communities. We are speaking for those who already lost their lives, who already lost their farms, their businesses because of the climate crisis. We are speaking for those who are suffering right now and trying to protect, you know, the future for the coming generations and even our own future. So it's important to have every voice included because if some voices are left out that is then it's not justice at all then then that means that we won't be able to fully eradicate the challenges the inequalities that are brought about as a result of the climate crisis 
And in the time since you've been involved in the climate movement, is that something you've been aware of when you think about um, the the activisms you've seen, what you've read, what you've learned, where you've been? Is is it kind of your understanding that, that those voices up until this point haven't been heard enough? What's What's really brought that home for you? Even at this time, voices uh, from the most affected areas are not being listened to as much as they should. We we hear about inclusion, we hear about, you know, diversity in the climate movement, but we still don't see it in how these voices are being represented. It starts with the media, it starts with organizations that, you know, uh, organize and put up these climate events all that shows that there is still a lack of, you know, representation of voices from MAPA. When I say MAPA, I mean most affected uh, people and areas. Look at the the the, the coming COP twenty six. Uh, there is a challenge of MAPA voices being included in the you know climate conversations. First of all, with the vaccine, you know, iniquity that we are seeing, a deadline was put for you know activists to register for you know the vaccines from the UK government and. Not all activists, you know, a few activists from MAPA have been able to get badges to attend the COP and very few were able to get badges to register for the vaccination on time. That means they won't be able to be represented at you know, the COP26. So I feel like there is still, you know, a lack of representation and it's we need this inclusion especially at the cop 26 but how are we going to see that if those who cannot access vaccines in their countries have already missed the deadline for the vaccination given by the uk government it doesn't make sense we'll come back to cop 26 in a moment but you were at cop 25 in madrid in 2019 because there wasn't a cop last year because of the pandemic tell us about that experience well, um, I remember I didn't even know that I would make it to the COP. And when I went there, it was an extremely new experience. And I got to meet many activists I was organizing with online. So that was like the best thing about it, meeting other activists and also organizing with other activists at the COP. And I remember a number of things that happened in the COP, one being, you know, thrown out of the COP because we were protesting inside. And it doesn't make sense to, you know, to say young people are inspiring us. Young people are going to save the world. And when we start to speak up, when we start to protest, we are sent outside while the polluters remain on the inside. So that is one of the experiences I really remember at the COP and um, I, th- I also remember doing quite a number of interviews and also joining a press conference. That was the first time I got to meet Greta. She's, uh, she's such an inspiration. And I was really happy to be a part of that, you know, press conference and speak in front of many journalists the first time that ever happened. Let's talk about further about COP26. Obviously, we need to make sure that people from the global south are able to attend as you've talked about very clearly what are the demands that you want to see the world meeting out of cop26 we've had leaders and governments talk about uh, targets they're setting 
for the climate and generally for the planet. But what I really want to see at the COP is real action, meaningful action. Leaders are setting targets, you know, for the climate, but they're leaving loopholes in those targets. As they set those targets for 2030, 2040, 2050, uh, they're still opening up new coal pipelines. They're still constructing or thinking of constructing uh, oil pipelines. So we want real action, meaningful action, because if we are, if leaders are to talk about 2030 targets, then the action needs to start now. We are really at a place of empty promises from leaders, empty summits from leaders, but enough of that. We are done with the empty summits. We are done with the empty conferences. We are done with the empty talks and promises. We are done with the sweet talks from the leaders about what they are going to do for the planet and for the people. What we want is real action. And that real action starts from stopping the investments in coal, oil, and natural gas. Because we cannot eat coal, we cannot drink oil, and we cannot breathe natural gas. And Vanessa, tell me this, if you think about somebody your age uh, in Britain, who's listening to this podcast, what would you want them to be doing in the run up to COP26 and beyond? What would your advice to them be as somebody who is such a playing such a really important role in mounting the pressure on climate on the climate crisis for any young person um listening to me right now what i would want you to do is to talk about the climate issues that are impacting different people across the world to communicate the crisis because it's important for us to create as much awareness as possible and also to help organize if you're able to organize you know i know there are going to be a number of actions that are going to happen uh as we go as we move towards the cop i know there's going to be a lot of actions a lot of work so if you're able to you know organize to help mobilize it would be you know really great to you know be a part of this because as a young person it's not just my future that is being you know affected it's a future, uh, the climate crisis is going to affect the future of every young person. It doesn't matter how long you know it takes to reach you. It finally reaches you. We saw uh, what happened, you know, in Europe. We saw the floods, and many people did not expect this. So this is what the climate crisis does. It comes when you least expect it. So. Join us in this movement. Join us in demanding for climate justice. Join us in demanding for a world that is better for all of us. Well, thank you so much for telling us your your story. Um, Vanessa Nakate, thank you so much. You're welcome. Happy to speak to all of you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
With us now is Tommy Vickerstaff, who is the UK team leader at the environmental campaign group 350.org. Tommy, we've, uh, we, we've had 350.org on the podcast before to discuss uh, fossil fuel divestment. But um, I wondered if you could start by reminding our listeners what exactly the organisation is and, and what you do. Yeah, I mean, besides a mouthful, um, it's an international uh, climate justice organisation. Um, so we're based in lots of different countries, lots of different continents, and our kind of remit is sort of threefold. We we look to um, cut off finance flows to fossil fuel projects around the world, whether that's from private banks like HSBC and Barclays or public money like from the Treasury and the Bank of England. And we also work with people on the ground who are resisting active fossil fuel projects like fracking in Argentina, big coal projects in Bangladesh. Um, And we also work on solutions work like Green New Deal. Um, And we do all of that with a kind of people powered focus. So we believe that what makes change is people organising and acting together. So that's how we try and steer all of our campaigns. And you've been at a couple of COPs in the past. Um, Can you tell us a bit about that and uh, how you found being a at a COP as a climate activist? When people talk about about COPs and, and the UN climate negotiations, I think people envisage the, the inside negotiations space. Um, and being in there as an activist is disheartening, it's infuriating, it's definitely not welcoming. Um, you know, the red carpet's rolled out for fossil fuel companies and big polluters, but it isn't rolled out for people like me, um, perhaps for obvious reasons. And so for me, what where the kind of importance of, of COP happens for, for activists and for organisers is in the outside spaces. Um, and all of the kind of changes that you see happening within the negotiation centre, no matter how incremental, always come from pressure built by global movements, activists on the ground throughout the world, and especially through those activists coming together in the host countries during the time of the COP to put pressure on decision makers. And what's, that was my next question, actually, which is, what role do you think activists can play in influencing these talks? What's been your experience? Um, I'd say it's a vital one. It's it's a hard one. It's a frustrating one. As I said, you know, uh, world leaders in those decision-making spaces are much more happy to listen to the likes of BP and Shell than they are to listen to frontline communities from the global south. Um, But without those communities assembling and and having kind of actions both inside the conference centre, but also in the city surrounding where the COP happens, um, we wouldn't see anywhere near the change we we see. I mean, what we see at these uh, conferences, the UN talks, isn't ever enough. Um, but it wouldn't even be what it is without um, grassroots groups, without frontline communities being front and centre in in doing actions throughout the time the COP is on. I remember at the COP I was at in Copenhagen, there was a whole, and maybe the one before that, uh, there was a whole thing about fossil of the day. I was always keen not to be fossil of the day. I don't think I, <laughs> I, don't think I ever was fossil of the day. Yeah, nobody wants to be fossil of the day. I mean, that's... It does show that as a minister, I, you know, I was I was aware that you were declaring the fossil of the day. And I thought, you know, that's something to avoid. And would you would there be handed out like leaflets and stuff and posters with the person who was fossil of the day? I guess what I'm asking is, like, how aware are the policymakers and um, and, and people representing business interests and so on aware of what's going on in activist world? They're pretty aware. They, they're, they're definitely I don't know what the right word is. 
rumbled, not rumbled. Uh, they noticed that it's happening. Um, it, I mean, they're, they're often kind of dogtailed around the conference centre. I was in Madrid last year with a, a bunch of youth strikers, which obviously lots of people recognise as the, the young people that did uh, the climate strikes. I was with some of those youth strikers in Madrid at the COP in 2019. Um, and they were literally following the, the UK kind of uh, negotiators around the conference centre. So it's, no, it's not like they can get away from the activists. Uh, and they're definitely, yeah, they definitely have to pay attention. I was always glad not to be the fossil. Um, <laughs> and, and more widely, what is 350.org's approach to the COP processes? Uh, and how useful do you think these COPs are, really? It's really important to recognise that the space is unjust. It's unjust in terms of who is given access to making decisions, which countries get the most talk time, who has the most power in the space. The fact that, you know, we know that 100% of companies are responsible for 70% of global emissions and chances are they're all waltzing around the conference centre together. So it's not, it's not a just space in terms of who gets access to it. It's much harder for an Indigenous activist from the Amazon to be there than it is for the CEO of BP. Um, and, you know, that, that explains the kind of interest in the space. So it's not a just space, but it's also a vital one. There's quite often conversations in in the movement of you know should we should we even engage in this space and it's always important when you recognize that the people you're opposing are setting the rules of the game to say okay should we even be playing this game at all but actually like we know that the cop is is the only space where a lot of uh, communities from the global south get this international platform and this this direct access to decision makers and we also know that whilst I don't believe for a second that the UN climate talks are the solution to the climate crisis. They are an important uh, part of the response for now. And so even though they're wildly frustrating, they're wildly unjust, it's really important for us to engage in that space and more importantly to hold space to make sure that the right voices are heard there as much as possible. Now, tell us about um, the COP26 coalition. I know that this is something the 350.org is, uh, is is joining with other campaign groups. Um, who's in this coalition and um, what, what are you pushing for at COP26? Yeah, so around, around any kind of major COP, um, you will have a similar coalition formed, which is basically um, a kind of convening space for... NGOs, grassroots groups, um, unions, etc., who are working on on climate change and want to come together to sort of not necessarily collaborate on everything, but at least communicate so that we know kind of where each other are at and as much as possible, as I said, bring the most affected voices front and centre in the way that demands are shaped and the way that resources are allocated. So the COP coalition is doing everything from supporting activists in the global south uh, to apply for visas and make sure that they can actually attend the COP to setting out some kind of political demands for the COP and also like comms and they're also doing a big chunk of work at the moment which 350 are supporting with around uh, mobilizations and figuring out how people can take action this year at COP bearing in mind that we've sort of been wildly derailed by the pandemic and not just the pandemic but also vaccine inequality across the world means that it the participation in this COP is going to be wildly different from what it usually is and it's always uh, unequal and this year it's going to be even more so so the COP26 coalition is looking at okay how do we um, engage in this space because as I said it's an imperfect space but we have to engage in it so how do we engage in this space in a way that tackles that 
And, and what thoughts and ideas have you had on that? Because uh, as you say, the, the pandemic and, and vaccine inequality has changed the ability of, of people to physically be there at the COP. What sort of ideas uh, around activism and protests uh, have you had that incorporate those difficulties? In terms of activism on the ground, I think there's two things. One is that, you know, it's been incredibly frustrating and disconnecting to be an activist in the last um, couple of years, but also there's more than ever to fight for. So it's it's simultaneously like feels really, really urgent and but feels much, much more disconnected and disparate. And one of the things that we have constantly been evolving is like how to organise online. And I think that that has allowed us in some ways to remember and bring along people that sometimes get forgotten in activism you know activism in in some of its forms is quite ableist and actually creating more ways to organize online allows us to again work with communities who are often most affected by injustice in a way that sometimes they get uh, they get sidelined and i think the climate crisis is super urgent right but the the thing is is that if you if your response is urgent and frantic the same mistakes get made time and time again so it's about being really intentional in how organising happens and making sure that the right voices and right people are front and centre. Um, and in terms of what we expect actions to look like at COP itself, so the COP26 coalition and 350 are supporting distributed actions to form this time round. So where you would usually see kind of a mass assembling of people in, in the key cities, which I think we will still see to some extent. I would expect there to be some very exciting things happening in Glasgow. There's a lot of very cheeky activists up there and a particularly rowdy bunch of youth strikers that I've got a lot of time for that will be doing exciting stuff. And equally, I don't think for one second that we're going to get London. Uh, London's going to get away with COP not being there. But in addition to that, people will be organising in local hubs, um, which again will allow people to to organise in a way that is more COVID safe. And, you know, if, if things have changed again in terms of the organising context, it's more likely that smaller events will be able to go ahead. And also that kind of local community-based solution is exactly the sort of thing that 350 Believes builds power. So allowing people to organise together at a local level um, is what leads to, to huge change. So what about anyone who's listening to this who wants to get involved, join in, in in some way. It sounds like there's a, a number of actions from, from doing stuff online, local hubs. What would be the first port of call for any listeners? So firstly, the COP26 coalition or 350s like mailing lists are will be where kind of information will be disseminated about what how people can get involved. And, you know, as I said, things might change um, with, with the political and, and COVID contexts. Um, so that's that's a way to keep up to date but yeah the cop 26 coalition are forming these local hubs so they'll, they'll pro- hopefully be an event near people that they can start getting involved in the planning or, or attend nearer the time if they want to um, and if there isn't one then you can set one up there's support structures that mean you'll be supported to do that if that's something that you'd like to do in your local space but also i don't think these events should be kind of no one's dictating what these are because it's about us to design the solutions together you obviously you, you've been at this uh, a few years, certainly since Paris. It's obviously, despite Paris, it's obviously incredibly, um, well, scary, problematic, uh, wrong that no government is doing enough. Just to end with, for our listeners, you stick at it. You must feel that the 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 protests that you're part of, the movement that you're part of, does have an impact just just talk to us about how you see that 
impact and i know there must be days when you think i'm having no impact at all and other days when you think well we are having an impact but what tell us about that i mean if i didn't think that there was a point to it i wouldn't be doing this right now i'd be on an allotment growing vegetables and twiddling my thumbs and getting on with my day um it's i was gonna say i believe but it's not just what i believe it's also a, a fact that no kind of big change in society has ever happened without protest and people on the ground organizing together um and that is going to be the same for the climate crisis it's going to be people on the ground pushing for the change we need that is the the tipping point towards winning and to to reimagining our communities reimagining our society in a way that is fair and just and you know that's going to come from redistributing resources but it also does come from communities organizing together being imaginative I think there's when you're saying no to things and when you're pushing back against things as part of a campaign it you know saying no isn't isn't an imaginative thing and sometimes we get downtrodden by just saying like no thanks put that down we don't want this stop that and actually I think as a movement um organizing at the moment there's there's a real need to to be thinking big in more big imagine imaginative revolutionary terms um i also think that if protest didn't work we wouldn't be seeing the kind of response we've seen from the government and the home office with the new policing bill that in itself is a pretty clear flag that that uh world leaders are, are scared of protest because they know the impact it can have well, thank you so much for talking to us and uh, giving us a clear sense of uh, what, what we can expect from activists at the COP. Tommy Vickerstaff, thank you so much for joining us. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. And that is it for our series on COP26. We'll be back to our usual schedule next week. And as always, you can go to our website for more info on all of these episodes and further reading on COP26 itself. We should thank our guests, Vanessa Nakate and Tommy Vickerstaff. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. All the research and guest booking is done by Joel Pierce, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. I've been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been your guide to COP26 by Reasons to be Cheerful. <laughs>